Merry Christmas, Lighthouse. My name is Crystal. <laughs> Thank you. I'm Crystal, Pastor Jeff's daughter, and I have the honor this morning of reading to you from God's Word out of 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31. And it says, For considering your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Thank you, Crystal. Amen to that. All right, shall we pray? Lord, we are here for you, to honor you, love you, adore you, even as uh, those wise men did 2,000 years ago, coming from the east, led by the star shining in the sky, and they came bringing gifts to you, Lord, bowing before you, the Christ child, and giving gold, frankincense, and myrrh honoring and esteeming you as their Lord, their Savior, though a baby. So, Lord, we're here to do the same, knowing that you lived your life, died sacrificially on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead, and now ever lived to make intercession for us. And so, meet us in the pages of Scripture as we ponder the events of that initial Christmas day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm so thankful that you guys can. I don't know if anybody was going to show up on Christmas morning or not. You know, it's like, okay, we just had church last night, and it was all, we had a great, great night last night. And um, so that you guys are here is awesome. Appreciate you. And um, so we had... Uh, staff lunch this last week on Thursday and uh, shared a meal together and we went around, we talked about, we shared different traditions that we grew up with in our family, Christmas traditions and, and uh, Pastor Ron said that when he was a kid, um, he, he always got an orange for Christmas. And I thought, did he, was he depression era, like 1930s growing up with, you know? And, uh, but the reality is, um, it, if my memory serves me correctly, you know, gift giving was a lot more modest <laughs> years ago. Like when I was a kid, and I was telling the staff, my grandma Fadness, she would send me a card every year at Christmas time, and it had one stick of juicy fruit gum scotch taped inside the card. And uh, then on my birthday, I would get a card from Grandma Fadness, and it would have a dime scotch taped. And without fail, she would send me a card for my birthday. And I always thought, man, my grandma's cheap. <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. It was something that I delighted in, knowing that my grandma thought of me and cared for me and so on. But we are, I mean, Christmas time is really a celebration of the greatest gift that was ever given 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. And so let's start with a question here, and I'm not going to keep you very long this morning. This is maybe a little bit more of a meditation and devotion than it is a study, but what if you were God, and how, how, would you do, how would you do this thing, this incarnation thing, this, you know, uh, becoming a human being and, and then living for a small period of time on the earth that you created amongst the people that you created? How, how would you do that? What would, what would it look like? I mean... What kind of life would you live? How would you dress? What would your appearance be? Um, who would you hang out with? How much money would you have? How would you do it? Well, let's look at a few of the details from Scripture of how God actually did it. So the first thing, number one, is the birthplace, the birthplace that he chose. This is out of Luke chapter 2 in verse 4. It says, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So after what would be a, a long and, and pretty arduous journey, about 80 miles from Nazareth down to Bethlehem, uh, you know, a, a manger <laughs> would be the last place Joseph and Mary would want to you know, choose to give birth to her baby. And so the manger uh, mentioned last night was more like a cave. It was dug out uh, of a hill and it, uh, you know, it was cave-like. And, and uh, you know, this is what uh, Jesus, something like this, was placed in a stone trough. Um, and so the manger was a smelly place, animals were in there, and uh, it wasn't very sanitary and all of that. You know, when Pam and I had Katie, our first baby, um, we looked all over the place for the best possible place to have kids, right? To have your children. And so we were, we were members of Kaiser Permanente. And so they said, well, there's, there was one Kaiser Permanente hospital in Anaheim Hills, and it has an ABC uh, room. And ABC is Alternative Birthing Center. And so what they did down there was they set up rooms like apartments. So it didn't look like you were in a hospital but you just moved into some apartment to give birth. And we thought, man, that is so great. Like these people really care about the process and like, man, that's the place for us. And so that's where we went. And Pam had Katie thinking that that's the best hospital possible. And I'm sure Joseph and Mary would have chosen the best possible birthing situation if it was their choice, but it wasn't their choice, was it? I mean, when the birth pains start, there's no stopping them. So God had a birthing room picked out for them. 
And they were turned away from the inn out of necessity. Contractions were coming hard and fast. And so they duck into the nearest birthing center, which happened to be a cave. If God would have consulted me, I would have advised him to create a completely sanitary, state-of-the-art labor and delivery facility with the greatest physicians on planet Earth to staff it. The facility would be exclusively for the Son of God coming into the world, and God didn't consult me, did he? He chose a manger, a cave. Not very impressive, really. Well, what about his appearance, the appearance of God the Son? What would you look like if you could choose your looks? You could look like anything you wanted, as beautiful as you wanted to be. Well, Isaiah uh, tells us how Jesus looked. It's really the only scripture that, that directly refers to Jesus' looks that, that I can find in the Bible. Isaiah 53, 2, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So from the, the very little scriptural evidence that we have concerning Jesus's outward appearance, it, it seems that he was not a handsome guy, that he was not a good looking guy. He was very common, very plain looking. And so the word form from that verse is the Hebrew word to'ar, and it, it, it means outward appearance. The word majesty, hadar, it means beauty or splendor. So, so what it's saying, there's no outward attractiveness uh, that, that would draw people to him. So, so you think about this. Jesus was so common looking that he was able to lose himself in crowds, and that happened many times. J Judas, after three years of Jesus being in the public eye, still had to point Jesus out with a kiss in the garden that night of the betrayal. And so, I want to suggest to you that the, the plain package that Jesus arrived in and lived in was no accident. Jesus came in a form that wasn't threatening, wasn't intimidating. Everyone could feel at ease around him. People often struggle with inferiority, feelings of inferiority or intimidation or jealousy around, you know, particularly beautiful, outwardly beautiful people. It can create barriers, mental barriers in people. And it can make people seem unapproachable. Jesus' outward appearance created no barriers. He wasn't flashy and beautiful. He wasn't physically impressive. He wasn't intimidating outwardly. He was outwardly plain and common, thus approachable. That's how he chose to do it. Well, how about his material wealth? If you... We're gonna, if you were God and you were going to enter the world, would you have some dough? Would you be all like Elon Musk level uh, wealth if you came? Why not? You know, buy whatever you want, go wherever you want, whenever you want. Uh, surely the Son of God would 
you know, have a decent bank account going. He would probably have a palatial villa overlooking the Sea of Galilee to come home to after a day of teaching and miracles. He would have designer robes and Nike sandals to wear and, you know, all the stuff. Early in his ministry, a, a certain scribe came to Jesus and uh, obviously just very enamored with Jesus and what was going on in Jesus's ministry. And the scribe said, Master, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds have their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. How, how could Jesus expect to impress anybody by being homeless? Because that's what he was saying. He said, I'm homeless. But Jesus didn't view riches the way that we do. He didn't need money to feel secure. He didn't need riches to impress people. It wasn't important to him. And yet the Bible doesn't hold up a life of poverty as being virtuous either, or, or a life of wealth being dishonorable. For instance, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, be rich in good works, be generous, ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, that they may take hold of what, uh, that which is truly life. So, so Paul doesn't say, uh, you know, if you've got millions of dollars, how dare you give it all away and live a life of poverty? He doesn't say that to those who are wealthy, wealthy Christians. He says, if you're wealthy, guard your heart from arrogance and ego, because that could be a real problem for you. Do good. Do good works. Do good things. Be generous. Fund the kingdom with that money that God has given you to steward. The greatest in the kingdom isn't the richest monetarily or the poorest it's the servant that's who's great so it's the one who looks to serve people and impact people's lives for the lord that's what jesus did second corinthians 8 9 for you know the grace of our lord jesus christ that though he was rich i mean had it all yet for your sakes he became poor that through his poverty you might become rich. Jesus, by choosing to walk on earth without any of the world's goods, essentially, was choosing not to let anything get in the way of him giving himself to, to people. Jesus didn't come to redeem things. He came to redeem people. Well, lastly here, and we'll spend just a few minutes on this, if you were God and you were going to come to the earth, who would you hang out with? Who would be your crew? Who would be the people that you connected with and associated with? Well, certainly the Son of God would have carefully chosen 
uh, friends and associates that would enhance his ministry and his public image, right? They would need to be intelligent and influential and, you know, well-groomed hipsters with the beard and the glasses and unquestioningly loyal, and they would always have to make Jesus look good. Well, let's start with the, the PR guy, the, the guy who kind of, you know, went before Jesus, made, made a way for Jesus. Um, this guy in Mark 1-2 uh, the prophecy from Isaiah says, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare uh, your way before you. And here's what it says about that messenger, verse 6. And John was clothed with camel's hair and with a girdle of skin around his loins. Think Tarzan. And he did eat locusts and wild honey. So if you can just kind of picture this wild man coming out of the wilderness wearing leather and fur and a loincloth, living off the land, eating bugs and organic foods. He was kind of a cross between, you know, Tarzan and a hippie uh, kind of a thing. And this is Jesus' PR guy. And, 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 you know, and people, he drew massive crowds, and, and certainly he must have had a way with words, right, and represented the Lord well. Well, let me give you one example. John the Baptist attracted massive crowds. And here's what he said. When a massive crowd would gather at the Jordan, he would say, Luke chapter 3, verse 7, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You, you slimy, poisonous snakes. Now, as far as I know, right around the top of the list of rules of what you do if you're trying to, you know win people over to your brand is you don't insult them. That's like rule number one. Tact apparently wasn't one of John's strong suits. In fact, his lack of tact eventually got him beheaded. But that's who God chose to prepare the way for Jesus. But Jesus' whole life was marked by unlikely people, unlikely relationships. He didn't go to the universities and the seminaries to, to, you know, connect with the intellectuals. He didn't go to Hollywood to get the beautiful people or Wall Street to get the wealthy and, the, and so on. He went to the streets. He went to the wharves. He went to the docks, and he picked out the strangest crew ever to be sent on a world-changing mission. That's what Jesus did. That's how he chose to navigate his way on his short stint on earth. He had a tax collector and a zealot on his team. <laughs> that would be like AOC and Ben Shapiro on your, on your team. When I look at who he chose to follow him, I get encouraged <laughs> because if he can work with them, he can probably work with me and he can probably work with you too. So the, the criteria that we tend to use in our choosing of things, God doesn't use. 
I mean, he put out, the Lord essentially put out a verbal want ad and said, here's what I want. Everybody who's weary and heavy laden. How, if you're a business owner, hey, if you're like a super tired uh, person and you're just struggling in life, that's who I want to come work for me. And he continues to call the unlikely. 1 Corinthians 1.26, we read it at the beginning. You consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. When that first cry was heard from that cave in Bethlehem, a little wrinkled, blood-covered baby came into the world and the universe reached a turning point. For the first time, God, the Creator, who previously had only been heard, could now be seen and touched. All that God was now occupied a body. He was approachable. He was available. Jesus, the, the dividing point of time, could be touched, and he put us in touch with God. God's kingdom is upside down from this world. If you give up your life for him, you'll gain your life. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, then you need to be the servant of all people. The last shall be first in the kingdom of God. He who is least among you is the greatest in God's kingdom. So I don't know of any prizes that are given to the least. The world doesn't really work that way. Our world isn't set up like that. And yet God's kingdom is. Least is not... It's not the cellar of society where, where the dregs are. Least is a choice that people make when they choose to elevate others above them, to consider others of higher rank than themselves. And when you do that, you'll find yourself serving and wanting to be a blessing to people. And as a result, your position ends up last. And you didn't even notice. And you don't even mind. Very few make it to the top in this world. And the ones that make it are generally thoroughly disappointed when they get there. John Mayer, I would say reached the top, the top of the music world. But he wrote a song some years ago called Something's Missing, and in it he writes, I'm dizzy from the shopping malls. I searched for joy, but I bought it all. It doesn't help the hunger pains and the thirst I'd have to drown to at first ever to satiate. Something's missing, and I don't know how to fix it. Something's missing, and I don't know what it is. Friends, Check. Money? Check. Well slept? Check. Opposite sex? Check. Guitar? Check. Microphone? Check. Messages waiting for me when I come home? Check. How come everything I think I need 
always comes with batteries. What do you think it means? Something's missing, and I don't know how to fix it. Something's missing, and I don't know what it is. That's a very Solomonic, Ecclesiastes type of sentiment that's universal to humanity. Those few who climb to the top in life find out that the top is barren. So, there may not be much room at the top, but I'll tell you this, there's a place where there's plenty of room, and it's not disappointing at all. It's called a manger. And it's small, it's dirty, it's inhabited by animals, but it's the place where the Son of God came into the world. The greatest in the kingdom was born there in a manger. And there's plenty of room when it comes to servanthood. <laughs> plenty of room. There aren't many fighting to get into the manger. There just aren't. But the manger is where true greatness is born. And it's where the... the the, the true greatness that heaven recognizes is birthed. The last will be first, gang. It's true, as we'll discover. Lord, we thank you this morning for becoming one of us, and you did it in, in a way that, um, that taught us a lot of things and continues to teach us a lot of things about your kingdom and your ways. And so, Lord, as we perhaps sometimes get caught up in clamoring to get to the top of this or the top of that or find some sort of uh, affirmation in the world and yeah, that kind of stuff. Lord, I pray that we would have this mind in us, the same mind that was in Christ Jesus, though being in the very form of God, thought equality with God was not something to be grasped. But being made in the form of a servant, he humbled himself and made himself obedient even unto death, death on the cross, wherefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father. Whoever would be great, Lord, in your kingdom will be the servant of all. You give grace to the humble and you oppose the proud. God, may you find humility in us this Christmas morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Greg. Ah, oh, it's so good to have the word poured into us, right? At this time in our service, um, we invite you to Go around the room and there are communion tables with um, unleavened bread and grape juice available for you. Um, I think it's fascinating that um, the wise men from the east recognize the stars. Pastor Greg shared with us um, on December 4th, I think it was. Um, but do you know the uniqueness of their gifts really matter? Because in their gifts, there's a message and they brought gold, which is the message of deity. This, this one is God. This one is the creator. This one is the one who created the unique people that are different from all others. But then there was frankincense. And frankincense is a picture of a soothing aroma, but it doesn't take place until it's burnt. 
And so a picture of the, the one who was judged, the one who would be judged on our behalf. But yet we remember that there is a fragrant aroma from that that was pleasing to the Father, that He restored that unrighteous man to a righteous God by His blood. And then finally, myrrh. Myrrh, um, again, a fragrance that is used in embalming fluids, you know. And, and, and so to prepare his birth, or his death, excuse me. Um, but yet again, myrrh, there's a uniqueness about myrrh is that its fragrance happens when it's crushed, you know. And, and so I think it's a picture for us to consider that, wait a minute, why the myrrh? The myrrh for embalming, the myrrh for preparing for death, but yet there's something that happens is in that crushing of death, that's when myrrh's fragrant aroma arises. And I think it points to the risen Savior that we trust in. That's the point of our communion. That's the point of remembering what He has done. This one who was born in the stable and laid in the manger, as Pastor Greg said. Oh, the bread of life for us to enjoy today. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to remember that He is the bread of life. So let's pray. Lord, we thank You so much that You came, oh, that You gave Your life. You were judged on our behalf, yet it was a fragrant aroma to the Father that man is now restored. And so, Lord, thank You that You give us new life as we ask Your blessing um, now, in your name we pray. Amen. So won't you partake of the bread? And then, of course, Jesus took the cup, explaining to the guys, this is a new covenant, fellas. This is something God and God alone is doing in the shedding of His blood, the remission of sin. Oh, that we could be cleansed. We could be free. We don't have to drag the baggage of our sin around with us for all to see. No, Jesus says, and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And so let's give him thanks. Jesus, thank you for the freedom that you have given to us through the shedding of your blood. That we have life. And our life is hid in you. And so we must rejoice in the Savior that was full of love that was poured out for us. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Won't you partake?